Many of you may know it, know it, but Victor often leads the music at Gray's on Sunday morning and in Graniteville, and then when the sermon comes, we go live to Beaufort, so we appreciate his ministry and all the translation that he does. Like I'm going to give him a, be a 50-page handout, I think, before we're done, that he has to translate into Ukrainian and Russian, and this Discovery Class series is translated into Mandarin. Um, we were supposed to go and train 4,000 pastors to use it, but COVID changed that. But nonetheless, it's in the language, and folks are using it in churches across the country. It just deals with the nuts and bolts of the Christian life. And I tell them you can copy it as long as you want, as much as you want for free. Just don't take the copyrights off. Now, with that said, uh, clipboards. Peter, I think you're going to help me. So, um, as you know, Wednesday night is an entity in itself for uh, child ministry. And we ask people to consider, not every week, we want you to have the bulk of the weeks here in the service for those who are able but to consider eight weeks. Some of you can't do eight Wednesday nights. They're not in a row. They're spread out over the course of 52 weeks. But if you're able, now if you've never served before in children's ministry, there'll be a process. They'll contact you in application. We just want to make sure that we're comfortable with you serving our children as you would want, of course. So uh, if you're able to uh, sign that tonight, that would be a big help to Randy and Evelyn. We don't use, like other churches do, paid professionals to come in. And there's a reason for that. Most big churches like ours, it's all paid professionals on Sunday morning anyway. Why would you want someone who's either A, not saved, or B, a believer who's disobedient, who is willing to give up their Sunday every Sunday to serve your children. I wouldn't want that kind of teacher. So it's not just childcare, it's ministry. And we're building in the lives of these precious little children in a day when they need everything they, they can possibly get. All right, everyone have a handout. If you still need a handout, I see Pastor Ed with some. Raise your hands, all right. So each week you'll come in and pick the hand up, and we'll basically pick up where it left off. And so when it's finished, this will be one of the longer ones because of its critical nature. I taught the discovery class for a long time. And uh, ever before I came to this church, I was teaching this material. Uh, hundreds of new Christians that God allowed me to lead to Christ in the university campus. I would teach this week in and week out. And what I've learned is that most people have the same set of issues and the same set of questions. And that's what we try to address in this 45-plus week course. In fact, I would say that if Dr. Graham is right, the majority of Christians in America don't have a grasp on this material. And yet, if we're going to mature and grow up in Christ and be used of the Lord to introduce people to the Savior and help them to grow, then this material is absolutely essential. All right, with that said, let's go ahead and we'll bow in prayer and we'll begin tonight. Our Holy Father, we thank you and love you for the incredible grace that you've shown us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that we have the privilege tonight to open your word. You told us it is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path, that as we study it, we become wiser than the aged, wiser than the secular teachers of the world. 
It's your book to your people. You said that those who are unregenerate, the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him, and he cannot appraise and discern their meaning because they're spiritually discerned. And so we thank you that when you saved us, you sent the Spirit of God to be our helper, to be our anointing, our teacher. And we pray tonight that though I stand here, that above and behind me would be his presence, that he would open the truth of Scripture up to us, that we might be changed by it and more active in the great commission that you've entrusted to us. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, as you can see, this handout is entitled The Christian and the Bible. And we have six primary objectives, God willing, by the time we are finished with this handout. Uh, First, to have a clear understanding of the importance of the power of God's word in introducing unbelievers to faith in Jesus Christ. I hope you will see that if you don't get anything else out of this whole lesson. You'll see the importance of God's word in introducing people to true conversion, faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, to understand the role of God's word in the life of the believer in renewing our minds and making us more like Jesus Christ. A lot of Christians are stunted in their spiritual growth for the simple reason their relationship to the scripture is quite casual. Three, to understand the relationship between being filled with the Holy Spirit and being filled with God's Word. Sometimes uh, the presentation of the Spirit's work in our life is all one-sided. And people will say statements like, let go, let God, just let the Spirit work. But as we'll see, He doesn't work in a vacuum. He works in conjunction with God's Word. And some of us are stuck in habits and character traits that have never changed. And we've never understood the intersection between being filled with the Spirit and His Word in our heart. We'll cover that in great detail in this section, uh, in this handout. Four, to understand the why and how of Scripture meditation. Uh, There's a lot of wackos that have walked into evangelicalism that have uh, introduced all kinds of things like centering prayer and just weird things that have nothing to do with biblical Christianity. It especially has infiltrated the women's ministries in the U.S. in meditation of a different form. Meditation is not emptying your mind. That's maybe the Eastern brand. But biblical meditation is filling your mind with Scripture. And we'll talk about practically how we do that. To share some ways in which you, to implement a daily quiet time. Now, if that's not a part of your life, I, I hope it will be. It needs to be. Um, We need to feed on God's Word daily and spend time alone with God where He strengthens us. And then, as always, we have two verses of Scripture that we've memorized in each of these handouts, and then maybe some of us to consider taking the Top 100 Challenge. Uh, The Top 100, I think, passages that are non-negotiable. Are these set in cement? Of course not. You might have five that you think should be on my list. But these are... Scripture, I promise that you will use day in and day out as you minister to those who are lost and those who have met the Lord. And that will come right at the end of this. um, I think this handout will take us four weeks to get through. All right? Now, uh, as you look at the structure of these handouts, there's usually a general introduction, which is where we're headed for the entire session. And again, I think this one will take us four weeks to get through. And then under each Roman numeral, there's an introductory paragraph, which is the focus. So if you're in a position to teach this material, 
You want to stay alert to that. We have three groups of people in the discovery class. A, new Christians. B, people who have been saved sometimes for decades, but no one's ever discipled them. Uh, I think of one brother who's now a deacon. He said he grew more in six months in the discovery class than he had in the prior 22 years. He basically was telling me he stayed a baby Christian for 22 years. And so these are like critical truths. And the third group of people, and I tell them when they go, just don't intimidate new people. Those are mature Christians. And I don't want them answering all the questions. In fact, I'd rather have them say nothing in the discovery class so that those who are either, A, new to the faith or new to these critical materials aren't intimidated, all right? So I suppose it is impossible to overstate the importance of the Bible because it is through God's word that we are afforded the opportunity to see and know God. It is through the Bible that God reveals his character and care, his sovereignty and power, and his reason for creating us, the universe, and everything in it. Indeed, the psalmist succinctly said, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In the apologetic section of this course, we will focus on how to prove the Bible is true and that the Bible is the only book that God ever inspired. But in this lesson, we're going to learn how to depend, that's our focus, how to depend on God's word for our daily sustenance. So there is a section of the course that we call it the apologetic section. In one, we do an introductory lesson into what is apologetics, because there's three or four approaches to apologetics, only one that is rooted in scripture, the rest that is rooted in philosophy. Um, And then we look at the most commonly asked questions about the Christian faith, not only by believers, but by unbelievers. And honestly, sometimes people are scared to share their faith I think they're going to get asked a question they might not know the answer to. Well, if you don't know the answer, you can just say, I don't know the answer, but I'll find out. There's nothing new under the sun, right? But honestly, if you will learn those 10 questions, and one of them is, how do we know the Bible is the only book God wrote? And to be able to give you know, a 10-minute answer and a 60-second answer, you're going to find in those 10 questions, they're going to comprise over 95%. I can promise you, you say, how do you know? I've been doing this for 40 years. I've shared the gospel with thousands of people, whether it's on the college campus or when I was the director of executive ministries in Dallas. Didn't matter if a guy was a CEO of a corporation or if he was a freshman in college, we basically have the same set of questions. So we're learning how to depend on God's word. We cannot underestimate the importance of consuming it regularly in order to help others to find forgiveness in Christ, but also as the spiritual fuel to grow us to maturity. Jesus, in modeling his own commitment to the scripture, when quoting Moses, Moses, of course, wrote the first five books, right? So sometimes the Uh, Tanakh or the Old Testament is summarized by Moses and the prophets or Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. He's credited with the first five books and a few Psalms. Um, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. By the time this lesson is completed, it is my desire that we will clearly see how God's word equips and empowers us to serve him. 
2 Timothy 3.17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In Hebrews 4.12, it's alive, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And when we understand that, it becomes a, a tool. We hope to learn that God's word is our greatest offensive weapon against our adversary, the devil, and the powers of darkness as we learn to wield it effectively. Paul, when he speaks of our offensive weapons, says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. But sadly, many Christians never take it out of its sheath. And they're not really sure how to. And so that's, again, why this section is so important. We hope to learn that God's word is our greatest effective weapon. Then no one should ever doubt the importance of the Bible. When we read statements like what Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. There's only a few things that last for eternity. God, people, his word, and angels. Those are the only things with eternal value in all the universe. The fact that God includes his word in there says much. Okay, so um, in in this handout, we're going to look at things like the power of the word of God, the priority of God's word, the product in our life. So in this section, as we think about the power of the word of God, we will learn that not only does the Bible have the power to save us, but it also has the power to sanctify us by shaping us into the image of Christ. The degree to which we understand these truths will not only influence our use of Scripture and personal evangelism, but it will also deepen our personal commitment to learn God's Word and becoming more like our Savior. God's Word is the tool the Spirit uses to bring about conversion. So it's the tool, and we'll see that tonight. No one has ever come to faith apart from the Bible, apart from the Word of God, It's the tool the Spirit uses to bring about conversion, and God's Word also has the power to cleanse us, to sanctify us, and to make us holy. This is why Jesus admonished us for God's Word to abide in us, and it is why when praying for us, He said, sanctify them in the truth, your Word is truth. So we're going to see two dimensions, as we've just brought out, not only in terms of justification, but in terms of sanctification. And so Jesus will say in that John 15, when they leave the upper room and they're headed towards the first spot where he'll do the high priestly prayer before they get into Gethsemane, they go through a vineyard. It's there that he teaches much. And he says in that vineyard, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. And there he uses the word clean in terms of justified, saved. So that's one aspect. But then he's going to go on in that great chapter where he says, abide in me and let my word abide in you. And that's the growth process. It is God's word that the Spirit uses to give us the power to defeat sin and to bring our thoughts into spiritual obedience to God. So Paul speaks of that, bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That can only happen if our minds are governed by Scripture. So let's first think, point A, about God's word in respect to those needing to be justified. Justification is an act of God whereby he pronounces a sinner to be righteous because of that sinner's faith in Christ. 
It's a pronouncement of righteousness. He's not making you righteous, but he has pronounced you to be righteous. And so sometimes a stilted definition of justification is given just as if I never sinned. It's really a half-truth. It's more in the positive realm, just as if you had always obeyed perfectly, where you're given the righteousness of God. The Bible is clear that that instrumental to our being justified or saved is the Scripture that acts like a seed resulting in genuine faith. And so it likens itself to a seed. The Bible teaches us in Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. People are called to believe in Christ and everything that we know about Christ is revealed in the Bible. And let me just say parenthetically, this is why it was so idiotic and wrong and heretical for Andy Stanley to say that you can unhitch the Old Testament from the New. And he made these incredibly stupid statements that he never learned at Dallas Seminary. We logged some time there and his sister Becky at the same time. He never learned that there. You cannot unhitch the Old Testament from the New. Everything we know about the Lord in terms of his being verified to be the Messiah is found in the Old Testament. That's the prophetic schedule. And so it doesn't matter in whatever age a person lives, even before the time that Moses began to codify the first five books around 1,400 years before Christ, no one has ever been saved apart from Scripture. Now, there were times when it wasn't written and God spoke in various ways and means, through direct revelation, but it was still the Word of God that was the seed that God used to bring about conversion. So we're not surprised where Stanley is now gone and sanctioning homosexual baptisms on Sunday morning. Those are the marks of someone who has drifted from Christian orthodoxy. And whenever you undermine the truth of Scripture, a man's theology ultimately dictates the morality that he teaches. And so people are called to believe in Christ and everything that we know about Christ is revealed in the Bible. And so it, is, it only follows that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The call of God that brings salvation demands faith in the true faith of which the apostle Paul is speaking comes from the word of Christ as it is proclaimed and shared by God's people. So whether it's the actual words that Christ spoke, whether it's the words that he affirmed, meaning all of the Old Testament, or the words that he promised that his apostles would write as they were moved by the Spirit of God, it's all the word of Christ. Faith in the Bible is not ignorance, nor is it blind, but it is based on the trustworthiness of God himself is revealed in the Bible. As we will cover later on in the apologetic section of this course, it can be demonstrated that the acceptance of the Bible is not blind because God has left internal evidence showing he uniquely authored the Bible. So the authority of Scripture is much like the existence of God. All men innately know there's a God. Again, you've heard me say, someone may say they're an atheist, but they're not. 
And we spend a lot of apologetics on defending the existence of God. The only problem with that is you find that nowhere in Scripture other than what God has said in passages like Romans 1, Psalm 19, Romans 2, um, passages like that that speak of what is called general revelation. So all men know there is a God. They know it through creation, through conscience, Matthew 5, through God's care. And all men, when they hear the Bible, know it's the Word of God. Why? Because it's living, it's active, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. That's not to say that we can't reason with men God's existence through creation and care and conscience, or that we can't reason with men that the Bible is unique, and we'll go through that in the apologetic section, which we give to people when they come to meet the pastor, five evidences to show the Bible is the only book God wrote. But still, they innately know it's Scripture, and sometimes when you're in an evangelistic setting, you know, someone wants to argue with you, and, you know, whether or not the Bible's the Word of God, and maybe you've give, given a few evidences, and you can say, well, listen, whether it's the Word of God or not, if the Bible is the most published book since the invention of the printing press, and it is, wouldn't you at least want to know what its general message is, if for no other reason, so that you can be intellectually conversant with people on the subject. And sometimes they'll say yes. And again, if you give the if you're given that opportunity, you can share the, this plan of salvation. It's alive. It pricks. There's a guy, his name is Rick Adams, and Rick is a dear friend. He showed up at my door at 10 o'clock at night when I was a campus pastor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And he said, I'm just here because my girlfriend Amy wants me here. And um, I want you to know I don't believe there's a God and I don't believe the Bible is true. Those were the first couple of sentences out of his mouth. By the time he left, he was on his knees calling on Christ as his Lord and Savior. Not because of any ingenious presentation that I did, but I simply reasoned with him. I said, well, Rick, you really believe there's a God, and, and the Scripture says you do because of the creation and this conscience that you have within that's obviously bothering you, which is why you've come here tonight, among other reasons. And I said to him, can I at least share with you what the Bible says? And his life changed. He's an elder at the Chapel Hill Bible Church today. God's used him mightily. So I don't want you to be taken back when you meet people who will kick against the Scripture. You're still looking for opportunity to share it. And his word that proceeds from his mouth never returns void without accomplishing the purpose Isaiah promises for which God sent it. So faith in the Bible is not ignorance, nor is it blind, but it's based on the trustworthiness of God as revealed in the Bible. As we will cover later on, it can be demonstrated that the acceptance of the Bible is not blind because God has left internal evidence. Then eight, where we left off, the principle that faith is born through the hearing or reading of the word is a message that runs all the way through Scripture. And so the Apostle Paul stresses the role of Scripture in conversion, the role of Scripture in conversion. As does the Apostle Peter, as does the Apostle James, 
as does the Lord Jesus. But let's look at Peter to start. Here in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and abiding word of God. Now, there's an important connection here between God's love for us and what is to be our sincere and fervent love for one another. The connection between verses 22 and 23 is introduced by the three-letter word for. I have an underline there in the verse. As Peter is reminding us that we are to fervently love one another because we have the same father, born of the same seed. You pick that up? In obedience to the truth, you've purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, meaning fellow believers. It's a generic term, brothers and sisters. Fervently love one another. Why? For. It's causal. You could render it because. Why? Because you're born of the same seed. You have the same father. Which is, again, why it becomes a mark of conversion in epistles like 1 Corinthians or even 1 John. If you're born into an earthly family, unless it's very erratic and unhealthy, there's an affinity for the members of that family. And when you're born of heavenly seed, there's always an affinity because God is not dysfunctional when he brings about a second birth. There's an affinity, a love for other people. And God wants that to grow and to deepen and to broaden as he's commanding us here. So when we are born again, we are placed into a new family as we have become children of God and therefore brothers and sisters in Christ. So John can say, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it does not know him. When they see us, sometimes they scratch their head. See the great love they have for one another, the scripture records. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. And they can't always understand the source of this love until they come into the kingdom and they too have this new birth. As many as received him, right? To them, he gave the right to become children of God. And that's the context that he's using it here in 1 John 3, a spiritual birth. Um, when you hear people talk about the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God, you're typically hearing a liberal. Someone who teaches that we're all just one big family and we're all going to heaven. Those, those are classic key words in the social gospel. In a creative sense, as we'll see in our study of Malachi, we're children of God. Paul argues the same thing in Acts 17. But in a spiritual sense, only those who have had a second birth are deemed children of God. The Apostle Peter 13 is reminding us that in the spiritual realm, the same seed that conceived me is the same seed that conceived you. Jesus made it very clear to Nicodemus that the only way to enter God's family is by a spiritual birth. For he plainly said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He said it in one way or another three times in that chapter. 
born again, or you could render it born from above. The nuance is the same in the Greek New Testament. So you have to choose one. And so some English translations say born from above. Other English translations, King James, NES, say born again. Same thing. It's the second birth, it's supernatural. Just as in the physical, <coughs> physical realm, we were conceived in our mother's womb by a seed. Even so, if we've been saved, it happened because we were conceived spiritually a second time by imperishable seed, by imperishable seed. So the apostle James makes the same identical truth in James 1.18. In the exercise of his will, he gave us birth. Now that's the 2020 NAS and other translations. You could say he brought us forth. But the sense is, is a spiritual birth. In the exercise of his will, he gave us birth. How? By the word of truth. There's no conversion without this imperishable seed. None. So that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Just as our human birth requires two parents, so our, so our birth from above. The instrument that the Spirit of God uses to bring about the second birth is the Word of God. And so we see this picture in passages like Mark 4, Luke 8, um, where the parable of the sower is given. And it's, it's an interesting parable because what you find, among other things, you might want to turn there. In fact, let's go to Luke 8 because it has a slight variant in it that neither Matthew nor Mark pick up. Luke chapter uh, 8, and uh, in verse 4, it said, when a large crowd was coming together and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns. The thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And then verse 11, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they will not believe and be saved. That's just the response that some will give. And so successful witnessing is when you take the initiative to sow the seed, to share the word, and you leave the results to God. Your job, my job, is not to convert anyone. Our job is to sow seed. I was speaking with someone today um, for a national radio show I'll be on next week, and he was asking me questions as they were trying to format the show and doing Jewish evangelism and why are so few Jews reached by evangelical Christians? And my quick answer was the same reason so few Gentiles are. People are no longer sharing the gospel. You cannot sow a little seed and expect a harvest. If you share once or twice a year, maybe you'll see someone come into the kingdom. But if you share once or twice a week, you will see someone come into the kingdom in this calendar year. 
Not all seed falls in the right kind of hearts. And there are some people, because of a callousness and a constant rejection, Jesus brought this truth out in John chapter 12. While the light is among you, believe in the light that you might become children of light. And then John will say, parenthetically, though he had done so many miracles in their presence, they still wouldn't respond. And he goes on to say, because they would not believe, they could not believe. Because they would not, they could not. And so a person can, known only to God, cross a line of which they cannot cross back over. Those on the rocky soil, verse 13, are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. This, as many as you know, we cover it in the Discover class in the first handout on the eternal security of the believer is a favorite verse people use to say you can lose your salvation. But of course, remember, every time the word believe appears in the New Testament, it is not always in reference to saving faith. The demons believe and tremble. Simon Magnus believed, but Peter will turn around and say, you're still in the depth of your iniquity, in the gall of bitterness, intellectually, but not in the heart. People can give intellectual assent to the gospel where it's never reached the heart. That's what he's describing here, and this is unique to Luke. The seed which fell among the thorns... These are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. And there are people that you talk to and, hey, you know, this is really important. Ah, I got so much to do, you know, I got to feed my family and make my money and retire early, and I don't have time for this. Yeah. The worries and riches of the world. Students, I, I don't have time to think about God. I got tests I got to pass. It's the same thing, just a different setting. And so very often the word is choked out. This, by the way, has nothing to do with Men in the Mirror, a book that came out in the 1980s. It was disgusting. Abused the scripture, twisted the scripture, said that this was a carnal Christian and has nothing to do with that. Jesus is speaking of different responses, why not everyone responds in faith. Now, I'm not saying that three-quarters of the seed is going to hit the first three soils, as someone would argue. He's just saying these are the kinds of soils that exist. And because they exist, again, if you sow a little seed, but the seed is the Word of God. It's the imperishable tool the Spirit uses, but you and I have to sow it. So here's this balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. If we don't sow it, then the seed that can bring about conversion isn't going to touch the human heart. God won't use us. He'll have to use someone else. The seed in the good soil. These are the ones who've heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Some 60, some 90, what some 100-fold, Matthew adds. All right, let's keep going. Number 19. So on the one hand, John 3, 5 through 7, teaches us that we are born again by the Spirit of God. And on the other hand, James 1.18 and 1 Peter 1.23 informs us that we're born again by the Word of God. So you're born again by the Spirit. You're born again by the Word. Please understand, number 20, that no one can be saved apart from the preaching and sharing of God's Word. And we must never forget 
this as we are faithful to share the gospel to win people to Jesus Christ. While your personal testimony might be used of God to open a door to share the gospel, the power to convert is found in the using of God's word. A lot of people put a lot of strength in their thinking in their personal testimony. Your personal testimony can convert no one. It has no power to convert anyone. The Word of God does. Now, your personal testimony might give you a platform to share the Word. But it's the Word of God, the imperishable seed, that God promises to bless. So, in our course on evangelism, when we offer it, we typically talk about how to share our personal testimony. But the emphasis is in getting from the personal testimony to the gospel itself. The degree, so while your personal testimony might be used of God to open a door to share the gospel, the power to convert is found in the using of God's word. The degree to which you believe that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God or Christ is the degree to which you will use God's word to win people to Christ. You will soon discover that if a person is not understanding the gospel, if you will simply read more scripture to a doubting heart, then you will witness God using his word to bring about true faith. I get this privilege, as you have the same privilege, when we're doing personal one-on-one kind of evangelism. Because when you're speaking to hundreds of people, you don't know how maybe people are processing it. But if you're in a one-on-one setting or one-on-two and people are asking questions, and I still don't get that or I don't see that, you convince them with Scripture and you read Scripture. And the more they hear it, it's just like a light can go off and God turns some gears in the spiritual soul and conversion takes place. I would encourage you to start by memorizing the Scripture found in the booklet, Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend? And also consider taking the top 100 challenge at the end of this session. There's an arsenal of scripture. Remember, printed literature didn't exist in the early church, did it? It's not like they carried around tracts. You'll read this. They had to memorize scripture. And not as conveniently as we can internalize it. And so you'll find yourself in settings all the time. I've study at home two days a week and I'll take a study break and walk out on the pier and back and there was this young man a few days ago he's about 19, 20 years old I said are you in college? He said I'm taking a, a year out. Oh great that's great. I said sometimes that's a good thing I said people go off to college and they don't know what they want to do and they amass $100,000 worth of debt and they don't have a job they can get from it and uh, so we started talking. You go to church anywhere? Oh, not really, not anymore. He said, you know, we'd go occasionally as a family. And so we got into this dialogue, and this guy was so open. He couldn't come last Sunday, but he's supposed to come this coming Sunday. His name is Nathaniel, if you want to pray for Nathaniel. And it was obvious he didn't know what the gospel was. He told me the church he was in and he had gone to with his parents. And it's a bunch of hoopla, black lights, smoke, color. No wonder he didn't hear the gospel. 
But he didn't go that much, so I don't want to totally blame that church. But when you see a pattern of people coming from a church and nobody seems to know the gospel, then you wonder what's going on there sometimes. But I didn't have a red booklet with me. So I just had to verbalize the gospel to him and quote scripture. And you're going to find yourself in settings like that all the time. I was on an airplane coming back from Israel, and there was a guy next to me named Benjamin. He was Jewish. And we got into a dialogue, and I didn't have the red booklet or my Jewish evangelism booklet, though before he got off the airplane, he had both because they were in the suitcase above. But, you know, I had Scripture. You know what his first question was? What is this thing about original sin? I said, well, that's taught in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament. And we spoke from his own scriptures how this concept of original sin, it seems unfair. And I explained to him it's not unfair because your Jewish faith, like the New Testament, teaches the solidarity of the human race. That when Adam sinned, we all sinned. And that's why we're incriminated. And this guy was just so open. And then he starts asking me, do you have any literature or anything I can read? I said, I do. It's up above. And I'll give it to you before we before we leave here. All I'm saying is you're going to find yourself in settings all the time where, again, if you're friendly with people, you're kind to people, you're not consumed with your phone and other things, there'll be opportunities, especially as you're praying for it, to share the Lord Jesus with people. And not everyone on your encounter will come to Christ. If I were to ask some of you, was it on the first time you heard the gospel, the 10th time you heard the gospel. Sometimes it's the first time, like with the church at Thessalonica, Paul said, the first time you heard the gospel, you turned from your idols to Christ. But sometimes it's like the Bereans where they're pouring over the scriptures and they're asking questions and they're seeing if this is really true or not. And so you might be the first person in a line of people that will bring a person into the kingdom. But you can't do that if you don't have an arsenal of basic scripture in your heart. None of us, 25, can ever take any credit for introducing someone to Christ. Right? You're born not of man, not of the will of man, but of God, John 1.13, because just as we read from James 1.18, this whole experience happens in the exercise of his will reminding us God is sovereign in salvation. However, that God wants people to be saved does not negate that we are instruments the Spirit can use to share His Word, right? Romans 10, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you had that opened, you'd see it's all in block print. Oh, this is an Old Testament quote. Oh, where does it come from? Oh, you go to your cross-reference. This comes from the prophet Joel. And it's a messianic passage about the coming Messiah. So because Jesus is the Messiah, Paul applies it to Jesus. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, speaking of Jesus, will be saved. But how shall they call upon him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will someone tell them unless they go? So again, there's a shared word. And that, therein lies the problem in America today. Again, God's sovereign there's a lukewarmness in evangelical churches. Look, when, when you're in love with someone, my wife and I met someone recently and they were newly engaged and they just couldn't but tell you about it because they're in love with each other. 
And when you're in love with the Lord Jesus, you'll want to tell other people. But if your heart is cold and consumed with the world, he won't be on your lips. Jesus, number 27, underscores this truth in the parable of the sower. We just read that. If you want to see God use you in the most exciting endeavor possible of bringing people to salvation, then learn to use the sword of the Spirit, constantly praying for opportunity, right? That's Colossians 4. God, give me an open door to take out of its sheath and to use it. So you're praying, God, give me an opportunity to take that sword, the sword of the Spirit out of its sheath and to use it, all right? Now, B, God's word in respect to those needing to be sanctified. So not only does God use it for justification, but (coughs) for sanctification. Justification is an act of God when he pronounces the sinner as righteous because of that sinner's faith in Christ. But by contrast, sanctification is the process. So one's an act, the other is the process where he is making us righteous, at least the present tense aspect of sanctification. Before we are justified, we are spiritually dead, but the moment we are declared righteous, we are made alive through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit so that we can be changed, right? Turn there to 2 Corinthians 5 for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old life has passed away. All things have become new. And um, he'll go on and he'll say uh, in verse 18, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So there, he, he's speaking here as an authorial we, right? He, he's saying, me and you Corinthians. I could say, Pastor Carl and the people of Community Bible Church. He gave us. He didn't just give it to me. He gave it to us. The ministry of reconciliation. There's people you'll meet and rub shoulders with and I'll never meet. And God's given you the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us, notice, the word of reconciliation. Again, it's a spoken word. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making his appeal. Here it is again, through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then this is one of those hundred verses you should memorize. He made him who knew no sin, look at it, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Fifteen words in the Greek New Testament. Let's unpack it for a second. He, the Father, he's just speaking of God the Father, made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, that is the sinless Son of God, He was holy, harmless, undefiled. He never sinned. He was absolutely holy. To be sin on our behalf. What does that mean? Well, one on the cross, he was treated as if he had committed my sin. When I receive him, he looks at me as if I had lived his life. The one who knew no sin becomes sin so that, here's the reason, we might become 
because we weren't before. The righteousness of God, that's what we need to go to heaven. You have to be as righteous as God in him, in Christ. And so to be indwelt by the Spirit of God, you must have the righteousness of God. Without the righteousness of God, the new covenant could never unfold. And that's why, of course, when Jeremiah and Ezekiel quote the new covenant, and Jesus in the upper room says, I'm initiating a new covenant in my blood, that's why no old covenant saint, Old Testament, old deal, first half of the Bible saint could know what you and I know. Because in time and space, sin had not yet been paid for. No one had imputed righteousness on the other side of the cross. So we are imputed. We are, it's, a, it's a financial term. It's an accounting term in the first century. We are credited with the righteousness of God. That's why I say justification is not just as if you'd never sinned. It's just as if you had always obeyed. He doesn't just wipe the slate clean. He credits you with Christ's righteousness. And that's why in a split second, all at once, we're born again. We're born from above. Now go back to our handout. Number three, it is not until we are justified or declared holy in God's sight that God can refer to us as saints by calling, right? 1 Corinthians 1-2. So sainthood is true of every Christian, even the Corinthians, right? Which then allows the Spirit to indwell them so that we can become like Christ. So we can become like Christ. Until you're declared righteous, you can't be indwelt. So it's impossible to grow spiritually until we're born spiritually. So biblically speaking, sanctification takes place after justification. How soon? I don't know. It's all like boom, 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 right? You're declared righteous and you're immediately in him. You also, having heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you're sealed with him in the Holy Spirit of promise. So it happens all at once. But there's this imputation, righteousness, that couldn't take place before Jesus died. And then we are indwelt. So to say that we are being sanctified is to say that God is progressively making us more and more like his son. Or maybe to say that sanctification is taking place, because there is a past tense to sanctification, that God is progressively making us more and more like his son. Um, the process by which God makes us more like his son is through the power of the Holy Spirit as he uses the Bible to renew our minds. So having taught his apostles about the Spirit, who is our helper, right, John 14, 16 through 18, they're in the upper room discourse, who enables us to live the Christian life, Jesus went on to pray later that evening for them and for us. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Set them apart, what, in the truth, your word is truth. So remember, there's two prayers that night. They leave the upper room. They make a pit stop somewhere where he does the high priestly prayer. Then he keeps going, second prayer, in the Garden of Gethsemane. The high priestly prayer, obviously, is not just for those apostles, because he goes on in John 17, 20, and he, he says, I pray this for those who will believe through them. Hey, that's me, that's you. He's praying for us in that prayer. So again, two parents in justification, the Word of God and the Spirit of God, two 
persons and an agent, or one person and an agent that's used in the process of sanctification. The Spirit of God and the Word of God. So it's important you under, to understand that the Spirit does not work in a vacuum, but in conjunction with the truth that He inspired in the Bible, such that our minds are renewed and our character can be changed. Right? Romans 12, 1 and 2, you present yourself to God as a living and holy sacrifice, and that you might be renewed in your minds, that you might prove God's will. We just studied from both James and Peter that the Spirit used the Word of God to bring about true conversion, right? You were born again by imperishable seed. He brought you forth through the Word of God. In the same way, both the Apostle James and Peter teach that the Spirit now uses the Word of God to bring about spiritual growth and maturity. Now, again, if that's true, that's why the devil wants to get the Bible out of the pulpit on Sunday mornings. Because it's the Bible that has the power to change your life, not all these stupid, foolish skits and all these little dances and all kinds of stuff that they're doing across America on Sunday morning. And some of you, this is the only church you've ever known, but you're, you're just like you're going to hyperventilate when you go into some other churches and you see what they're doing. This is the devil's plan in evangelicalism. Get the Bible out of the pulpit because this is what's going to change lives. Give them 10, 15-minute sermons. We'd have more people if I preached shorter. I don't want more people. I want more people who are sold out to Jesus whose lives are being changed and shaped by Scripture. And if it means less people, so be it. God, in the end, will judge a man's ministry at the judgment seat of Christ. And he doesn't use worldly standards. That's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 3. Wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stones. It's in the context of preachers. You could certainly extend it and apply it to every Christian in general because 2 Corinthians 5 teaches we all will stand at the judgment seat of Christ, as Romans 14, 12 does. But he's talking about preachers who build the church and what kind of material they are using, whether they're using worldly wisdom or the Word of God. So what number are we on? 11. Having just described that the Spirit used the word to justify us, Peter now goes on to show how the Spirit uses the word to sanctify us. He begins by reminding us that as those redeemed from our futile way of life, at the expense of Christ's precious blood, we must now keep our hearts clean so that the Spirit is free to lead us. So he begins, therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Some Christians are not hungering for the Word of God like they should be because they have been feeding on all the wrong things, and in the process, they are stunning their spiritual growth. And so negatively, Peter warns us to put aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. When you see words like those listed here, you should make sure that you know their meaning so that you can apply this command. And we'll stop right there, okay? Because um, we're supposed to have our kids picked up by 8 o'clock. We're not supposed to end here at 8, all right? So with that said, some of you who have been asked to pray, come up to the microphones. And just, I don't want to say this every week, but listen, when you come up to the microphone, don't stand here, all right? 
stand like right here, almost touch it. You don't have to touch it, but get close to it. The guys will adjust the sound. And when one person's at this mic, the next person already needs to be at this mic, okay? Now our Holy Father, we thank you tonight for your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we certainly don't want to be foolish in our study of it, apathetic towards it, but we want to hunger for it. And so we pray in these days together that you would increase our appetite for the word of God, that we might be changed and reflect the Lord Jesus to his honor and glory.